Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Again, if you would join me in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation, of course, is the very last book, the very last book of the Bible. Um, It's probably what you would call the most confusing book of the Bible. Um, some, I heard, a, I heard a kid when I was a youth pastor said, said, uh, it's just the weirdest book of the Bible. Let's just be honest. It's just weird, man. Uh, but then I had another kid in youth group say, yeah, but it's super cool too. You know, it's really awesome. Cause you got dragons and you got, you know, multi-headed beasts and, and all kinds of stuff. Right. So this book is, is, is interesting. It's very, uh, it's very, uh, difficult to understand. So we're not trying to understand all the intricacies and the details and the ins and outs of the book of Revelation here. What we're doing is through this Christmas season, we're just taking some pictures of Jesus that were given in the book of Revelation. And again, you might say that's a real peculiar passage to go to um, in Christmas time, right? Because Revelation is supposed to be how things wrap up, not how things kind of kick off, right? Um, I've said this before many, many times. Just about every Christmas that comes, the longer that I preach, and I'm headed into like the 17th year uh, or 16th year being, being a pastor, and I've been a preacher almost longer now than I've not been, all right? Um, and so that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. Um, but um, the, each time I preach, it becomes harder around Christmas season to think that, um, um, am I just going to preach the same thing again around Christmas time? Because how many times can you tell the story and how many angles can you go at from to tell the Christmas story. And the fact is, there's quite a few angles to come from, right? Uh, How many many angles can you come from to tell the story of the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and the baby in the manger? But there's a lot of different angles you can come from. And I think we've come at, at them from just about every angle you can possibly think of. But the truth is, the warrior king or the conquering king that we see in the book of Revelation is another one of those angles to truly kind of come to understand the Christmas story as well. Like we looked at last Sunday, you have to kind of view the manger through the lens of the conquering king that we see in the book of Revelation. Like I said, last Sunday in chapter one, we saw the first appearance of Christ uh, in the book of Revelation, and it was the appearance of Jesus at his second advent that is much different than his appearance in the first, right? In the first advent of Christ, we see this baby. He's born to Mary, He's God's, who was God's favored woman, and Joseph, a carpenter from Nazareth. He's born in a stable, he's laid in a manger, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, he's announced by the angels, he's visited by the shepherds, he's worshipped by wise men, and then he's also hunted by Herod. That's the picture that we get of Jesus at Christmas. But then in Revelation, he's all grown up. He's not this little baby anymore, but he is this conquering hero. He's this conquering king, and he's in full glory and power. He's got this loud, booming voice, like it said in, verse, in chapter number one, that just cannot be ignored. He's robed in bright white uh, linens, and he has a golden sash of priestly authority, and at his feet, they're like bronze with great strength that cannot be moved. He's got this thick head of white, the whitest white hair you can ever see. I mean, Jesus wasn't worried about adding a touch of gray or whatever it is, or, you know, just for men or whatever it was. He liked that white hair. His eyes have this crazy piercing look in them that just seem to see straight through you. 
Not to mention that a sword comes out of his mouth when he speaks and he's holding seven stars in his right hand, which glows almost as brightly as his face, which the Bible says outshines the brightest sun or outshines the sun in the middle of high noon on the clearest day that you can think of. So we see these two different pictures of the same person, Jesus Christ. We see this baby that was, that was from the wrong side of the tracks, didn't even have a place in a hospital or in an inn to be born in, and he's laid in a pig trough, and, and, and all of this stuff is taking place, and he grows up as a carpenter and working class, blue collar, kind of overlooked. Even one of his followers later on says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But then we see this picture of Jesus, this glorious king in Revelation. And it's what we call the duality of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is 100% God and Jesus is 100% man. And it's how we can 100% totally identify with Jesus as the son of man, that he was one who came and lived among us and he was tempted in every way that we were, yet he was without sin because he at the same time was 100% God. Understand this, church, and this kind of, this, this slays me sometimes when I think about this. The temptations that you and I face Jesus faced every one of them too. Every one of them. There was one difference. He was without sin. <clears throat> he didn't give in to the temptation. He did not exercise the sin. And it tells us something as well. It's not a sin when we're tempted. It's not a sin to be enticed. It's a sin when we move over to it. So Jesus identifies with us and we can identify with him. But at the same time, he is 100% God. He's not us. He's above us. But here's the beauty of the gospel, that this king of kings that is not us, that we have no business touching, we have no business trying to be like, says, I'll touch you. I'll come to you. I'll invite you in. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. Last Sunday, that's what we saw. We saw this picture of Jesus who is high above. He is not like us, yet at the same time is 100% for us. Because John says, I fell at my feet like a dead man. And I realized I had no business being in your presence. But then Jesus leaned down with his right hand and touches John and says, do not be afraid. I'm with you. And that's the message that we have every day as followers of Christ. Do not be afraid for I am with you. Not just a baby but the baby and the king. So from that point, John tells, or Jesus tells John to take out a paper and pen and he begins to dictate letters to seven different churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. These were churches that the apostle Paul had had a chance to help plant and other Christians, they had sprung up through some of the more populous cities there in Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey. And all of these churches were real churches. They don't exist today. Their life cycle ran they ministered and then God moved and, and moved others to other areas. And he commends some churches for the good things that they're doing. And then other churches don't get as good of a commendation. And so there are less letters, really. I like to look at them as less letters and more like report cards for the church. Jesus says, John, I want you to write down some things. And I want to give and share these thoughts. My opinion on the churches and how they're doing there. Now, the churches and the church, us today, we're formed to be the representation of Christ and his kingdom on earth. And that's still the case. Not just in Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and all those places, but in Lexington, Kentucky as well. The, Lex the church in Lexington, Kentucky better make sure that we represent Christ the best we can. If the church is called to be his representation, we better make sure we act like Jesus. 
Let's just imagine this morning that earlier this week, I, I, I come up and I say, you know what, I was sitting down at my computer and I opened up my email and I opened up my inbox and there's this email from some guy named son of God at heaven.com. And the email starts talking about all the things that our church is doing that makes this guy happy. And then he starts talking about some of the things that doesn't. And he says, here's some things that you need to tweak to improve. And let's just suppose that I tell you that this was signed sincerely, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What do you think we're going to do with that email? Like for, first of all, I'm going to be like, I'm going to put that in file 13 because I think this, this guy's crazy. But let's say we can, we can validate the fact that it is actually from Jesus of Nazareth in heaven. Don't you think I'm going to share that with the church? Because don't you think that the words of Christ are important for us to take and to consider? Now imagine being a member at one of these churches in Sardis or Philadelphia or Thyatira or the others and their pastor gets up and says, church, Jesus has just sent us a report card. Would you want to take note of what he says? So in today's text, we're going to read the report card of the church at Laodicea, all right? Uh, some people call it Laodicea, Laodica, whatever. I'm going to call it Laodicea. That's probably the Kentucky way of, that's probably the Kentucky way of, of pronouncing it, right? But we're going to read a report card, and this report card is not good. This is like, uh, this is like the, 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 the guy who finished last in the class, if this is the report card. Laodicea's report card is not very shining and pretty. But let's look at Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse number 14. Remember, this is the words of Jesus penned through John to the church at Laodicea. Remember, Jesus is standing in the midst of the church. He's holding the church. He knows the church. Not only does he know what they do, but he knows the reason they do it. And let's see what it says. He says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the originator of God's, the originator of God's creation. I know your works. Jesus knows us, right? <clears throat> and he says, I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say that I'm rich and I've become wealthy and I need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. I don't know about you, but those are not good grades on the report card for the church. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would speak. Lord Jesus, you know <clears throat> exactly what you want to say to the church. I pray this morning that we would hear you, that we would respond to you in your words. I pray that as your messenger this morning that you would anoint my voice, let it hold out for as long as you want it to, to say what you want to be said. I pray this morning that we would receive your word with gladness, with fear and trembling, but also with gratitude that you walk with us and you talk with us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. He says, I stand at the door and I knock, and if anyone hears my voice, I will come in, I will eat with him, and he with me. But up there we see this report card, and he says, basically overall, he says, you're lukewarm. Therefore, I feel like vomiting you out of my mouth. Now, not to be too graphic this morning, but how many people in here would say you've got a weak constitution? You've got a stomach that is easily turned, 
right? Anybody in here got a weak constitution? Um, that's graphic, right? Nobody really wants to admit it, right? But some people get a little more queasy than others at different things. Maybe for you, it's the sight of blood, or maybe it's something gory, right? For me, I don't get really sick at the sight of blood. I just pass out at the sight of my own blood. So um, maybe certain smells will turn your stomach. For me, I, I can't stand to see injuries like when I'm watching sports. And, and I don't know when you're watching sports, while the guy is laying there writhing in pain, they have to replay over and over and over again, slow it down and say, oh, if you can see right there, that's the moment that his tibia just cracked wide open, guy. I still can't watch the opening scene of The Blind Side where Joe Theismann has his leg turned the wrong way. I, I, can't, I can't watch that. Or maybe for you, it's you get nervous over a big meeting or a big decision or a big test. There's just certain things in life that overwhelm us. And one of our physical responses to those things is that we get sick. And when something is offensive or revolting to us, that it makes us sick, it becomes serious business. And like I said, in chapters two and three, Jesus gives seven churches this report card. And some are good, some are not so good. But then you come to Laodicea, and Laodicea's is the worst report card that any of the churches get. And here's what Jesus says about that church. He says, you make me sick. You make me sick. It wretches my stomach. And why does he feel that way about the church? Is it because they've become too political, right? They've, they've taken their eyes off Christ and become more too political, too conservative, or too, too liberal in their theology? Is it because they don't give? Is it because they show up late to church? Or is it because they serve bad coffee in the lobby? No, it's none of those reasons. Jesus says it's because you're lukewarm for me. And what's interesting about that is Jesus doesn't say you're necessarily doing anything bad. He says, you're not in sin. You're not sinning. You're not, he says, but the righteousness that you do is done with this apathetic feeling. You're just going through the motions. You see, a lukewarm Christian should be the greatest oxymoron the world will ever know. See, someone who believes in Jesus but just doesn't want to follow him with their whole heart. That should be a great oxymoron, right? You know what an oxymoron is? It's something that its definition like is the opposite of what it really is. Like jumbo shrimp. That's an oxymoron, right? Right? It's just, it just doesn't make sense. A lukewarm Christian is an oxymoron to the world. And this is why I feel like so many of us, so many people in our world just don't understand Christ. Because we don't make him understandable. We say he's the greatest thing. We say he should be the king of kings and he should be enthroned upon our hearts, but he's not enthroned upon ours. And so we're lukewarm. <clears throat> it's not somebody who's turned off by Jesus or even has turned away from him. It's someone who's just tepid, just blah, not moved in one direction or the other. It's like, yeah, I got Jesus and that's cool. This is a person who doesn't mind if Jesus is around, but doesn't want to let him in all the way. Catch that church. This is a person who doesn't mind if Jesus is around, but doesn't want to let him in all the way. That's why Jesus says in verse number 20, he ties up this report card and he gives us this key verse. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm knocking. And what a tragic position for Jesus, the head of the church, to be in. To be on the outside of the church looking in. Asking to come in. Imagine this in your mind. We're having service and all of a sudden we hear a knock at the door. We say, who is it? And all of a sudden he says, I'm Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I'm the reason you're here worshiping. And we stop and we say, you know what? Let's take a vote to see if we want to let him come in. 
because it may mess up our service. This is the attitude the lukewarm church has. This is the attitude that Laodicea has towards Christ. <clears throat> so today I want to do two things in the midst of my coughing and stuff. I want to look at what made Laodicea so, so lukewarm and what makes us so lukewarm. What are the signs that we may be lukewarm as well? How is it possible to become so apathetic to someone who loves us so purely, so passionately, so perfectly, and so powerfully as Christ? How is it possible for us to become so apathetic to him? Because we complain all the time at Christmas time, right? Well, Christmas is just getting too commercialized, too, re too materialistic, and it's not about Jesus anymore. We're not even allowed to say Merry Christmas and all this stuff. And it's, it makes us feel righteous to complain about that. But folks, we can't complain about the world not wanting to practice what we're not willing to practice year round. And Jesus is king other than just in December too. So what made Laodicea so lukewarm? Number one is they thought they lost sight of Christ's presence and Christ's authority in their church and in their lives. In verse number 14, if you look back there for a second, Jesus tells John to write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This angel could have been the pastor or it could have been the leading elders of the church or it could have maybe even just been a literal angel that God had assigned to watch over the church. But what we see here is Jesus refers to himself as the amen. He says, write to them and he says, thus says the amen. This means the end of the story or the final agreement or the judgment on the matter. What this is telling us, church, is that when Jesus says, I am the amen, he's saying, I'm the one you need to be worried about impressing. I'm the one that you need to be worried about following and pleasing. I'm the one that you need to be serving. I'm the final agreement. I'm the last judgment. Jesus has the most important and final say on his church. <clears throat> Jesus refers to himself as the amen, but then he says he's the faithful and the true witness, meaning that he has all eyes on the church. He sees us, he knows us inside and out. Remember those piercing eyes in chapter one, right? Those piercing eyes that could like pierce straight through your soul to see to your inner core, that sees through the surface level and the masks that we wear and sees who we are at our very core. Then he says he's the originator of creation. That means that Christ has the authority to make the judgments on humanity. He has the, he has the authority to make judgment on what he sees and it's all his to begin with. That means that as much as we want to put, give our own report cards and we want to make assessments of who we are and how good we're doing, really the final assessment comes from Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is something that we must all remember about every single thing. Jesus has the final say. And the question is, church, what are we living for? What are we ministering for? What are we worshiping for? If it's not for Jesus, we've missed the mark. See, Laodicea had lost sight of the significance and the magnificence of Christ. And they lost sight of the fact that they, exist, that they existed because of Christ and for Christ. The reason Laodicea was there, church, the reason that we're here is for Christ. And for the world to know him. See, they lost sight of his magnificence. They also lost sight for their need. They lost sight of their need for Christ. See, the reason Laodicea was having trouble was because they were an extraordinarily wealthy place. And it really puts into, gives us a clear understanding of what happens when we give ourselves entirely to wealth and money and materials over Christ. Laodicea is the picture of what happens there. 
See, Laodicea was extremely wealthy. You may say, oh yeah, okay, it was rich. No, what we mean is it was like filthy rich, right? Years before this letter is written, the entire valley there where Laodicea sits had been burned to the ground and had been rebuilt by scratch or from scratch from one of the wealthiest uh, families in the Roman Empire. One family rebuilt the entire town. It was a family named, named the Zionites. So it, 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 modern day, if we would think Dubai or Qatar or something like that, it was a new city that was built from scratch with this sudden influx of money and industry and everything. Secondly, it was an important textile center. Their wealth came from this fine black wool that, uh, that, they, would, that they would harvest from this rare sheep that only seemed to graze and to live in this valley where Laodicea was. So people from all over the world, the wealthiest people from all over the world, wanted this textile that only came from Laodicea. So they came from all over the world to get this linen and to get this cloth, and they came from everywhere to find it. So all of a sudden, Laodicea becomes like Fifth Avenue in New York, or becomes like Rodeo Drive, and it becomes a destination for the rich and famous to come shop and get clothes. It's like the anthropology or the Lululemon or something like that. Finally, it was also a medical center of the Roman Empire. In the mountains that, that kind of spilled down, that just sat right above Laodicea, was known for having these hot springs that had great deposits of minerals in the water, and they were known to have healing qualities. So people who were sick would come, and the rich would come and spend time at their spas that were right there in Laodicea. So people of Laodicea had this self-sufficient and wealthy class mindset. There were no homeless, pretty much, in Laodicea. There were no one struggling. Everyone was good. The kids were on free lunch programs. There weren't projects around. There wasn't poverty around Laodicea. They didn't understand that aspect. So they had this sufficient and wealthy class mindset. And in AD 61, another thing happens. An earthquake goes all the way through the valley and it measured an eight plus on the Richter scale, according to historians. Every city in the region was destroyed. So the Romans at that time, the empire, delivered federal funds to that valley to try to help rebuild the cities, kind of like a stimulus package. You know what Laodicea said? Don't need your money. We, we don't need your money. I mean, we got plenty of money as it is. We need to rebuild our city. All right, let's go. They started a GoFundMe and they, re, they, 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 they built the whole thing. They said, we don't need your money. We are self-sufficient. We are Laodicea. We exist because we are awesome. And that mindset spilled into the church. See, they didn't truly understand what it looked like to be in need of anything. And that spilled over into their spirituality as well. It was hard for them to come to a place to understand that the way God looked at them was poor and destitute and blind and naked because they had never been that way in their lives. They didn't understand what need looked like and so when we have to come to the understanding that Jesus is the only one who can heal us of our infirmities, and you can't just go up to the mountaintop and swim in the pool for a little while, you need Jesus. It was hard for them to completely understand. Yeah, they wanted heaven, so they put their faith in Jesus. That's fine. But as far as the everyday things, they didn't have to depend on Jesus for much. <clears throat> and even in verse number 17, here's what Jesus says. He says, you say, church, that I'm rich that I become wealthy and I have need of nothing. Remember, Jesus is looking at them saying, I'm wealthy and I'm rich and I have need of nothing. And that nothing means nothing. I don't even need you, Jesus. They thought, we're all right. We got all our needs met. The budget looks good. Programs are running well. Everything's going along fine. And the problem is that they had ceased to be people who cried out in desperation for God because they thought they had it all under control. 
They had stopped looking at God to fully rely on him for what they needed. And Jesus said that all this wealth had given them this false sense of security, this false sense of blessing. And so because of that, number three, they'd become blinded by their spiritual condition as well. He says in verse number 16 that it made them to become lukewarm and apathetic to the gospel and it makes Jesus want to vomit them out of his mouth. This is a reference to the one issue that Laodicea actually did have that didn't look too good in the city. You see, remember when I said they had these hot springs that were up in the hillsides above them? Well, below them in the south, uh, they had this high mountains that were up in, the south, in the south below them that ice cold water would flow down out of those mountains from melting snow. And then they had this hot water that was flowing down from the other side and they would meet right there in Laodicea. And the mixture of the two temperatures would create this tepid, stagnant water that would kind of collect in pools all around Laodicea and they couldn't drink their own water because it would become stagnant and poison and they would be lukewarm and it made people sick. So they didn't mind. They had enough money, man. They just, they just bought stock in Evian and had it shipped in. It was no big deal to them. But Jesus says, you've become lukewarm in your heart and it's making me sick. You're neither hot nor cold. You got a little bit of both going on and it's poisoning you and it's poisoning the gospel. And he says this. <clears throat> he points out to Laodicea that spiritually they've been drinking that stagnant water of apathy for too long and they've, let, they've, they've just like kind of gone into the self-reliant mode. And he says, because of that, you're wretched in verse number 17. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. He says, you're pitiful and you're blind and you're wretched. And this is a very telling remark because along with those hot springs, people came to Laodicea for this eye salve that they, that they made out of the mineral deposits that were in this water. The healing power of that water, they boiled it down and made this special salve that, that, that the ancient writers said could come very close to healing blindness. It healed all eye conditions. Ladies, they said that it like took away every, every aging mark around your eyes. Everybody wanted this stuff. And the ironic thing is Jesus is saying, you live in a town where eyesight is like right there, but you're blind to me. There's no physical salve that's, gonna, that's going to, to make you see me more. It's going to take you looking away from all of this other stuff and looking at me. He says, you're pitiful and you're blind. People would come from all over the world and they would ship out all over the world this eye salve. He says, but when it comes to the church, when it comes to your spiritual condition, you're blind and you can't fix it with that salve. All the Laodicean eye salve in the world wouldn't heal that spiritual blindness. And then he says that they're naked. Not by choice, but by being destitute and not realizing it. Again, the irony here, people from all over the world pine for all of their linens and all of their textiles. Yet Jesus says when it comes to spirituality, you can't clothe yourself. You can't clothe yourself. You must be clothed in my righteousness. See, the reason they had come to this place where they were spoiled and they were blind and they were pitiful and they were wretched and they didn't even realize it is because the last thing is that they had looked elsewhere other than Jesus for their peace and for their security. <clears throat> they had looked in other places for their peace and their security. See, imagine being in attendance at FBC Laodicea, First Baptist Church Laodicea, the morning that the letter is read by the pastor from Jesus and you've just been called wretched and pitiful, and poor, and blind, and naked, and you're thinking, Jesus doesn't know us at all, man. 
We're FBC Laodicea. We got all the money in the world. We give the most to missions. We got a nice building. We got a nice program. Our budget is full. We're probably giving more than anybody else. But then the Spirit begins to whisper to you, you know it's true. You know he's talking on a deeper level. And then the letter goes on to say, in verse number 18, Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold that is refined in the fire so that you may be rich. Buy white robes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness, not exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. And just the moment that you're about to get mad and walk out, the next verse says this, as many as I love, I rebuke and I, dis I discipline. So be zealous and repent. And then you begin to realize what Jesus was talking about. He's not talking about your physical eyes. He's not talking about your physical clothes. He's not talking about any of that. He's talking about your spiritual state. That because you looked away from Christ for so long and you've become satisfied with other things, you may feel okay on the outside, but on the inside, you're burnt up. You're burnt out. You're tired. You're broken. Because you haven't found your peace in me. And it's amazing how in the light of the truth of the gospel, all of the lies that Satan wants us to believe to work out this false security system that we have, it burns away real quick when Jesus begins to look at us with his eyes. And what he says there in verse number 19, he says, I, as many as I love, I rebuke. Right? Christ is not angry. He's not mad. He's not shouting condemnation. What is he doing? He is lovingly calling them to him again. Another second chance. And church, this is the nature of the word of God that we have before us. This is the nature of our heavenly father is that he is the God of the second chance and he lovingly calls us. And when he corrects us, it's a, it's a response of his love. He's the righteous judge, but he even judges us in love. And your soul, imagine you're still sitting there and your soul starts to search and realize that it's broken by ignoring Christ, by a lack of humbling ourselves before him and calling on him. And then we begin to notice the lack of peace that we truly possess in our soul. You say, but this is the church, pastor. So aren't they saved? Yes, they're saved. But that's about it. They're not walking with Christ. They're walking with other things. They're walking with an idea of Jesus that is just good enough for them to feel good about themselves. But again, Christ is on the outside knocking, saying, let me in. Because again, we serve a Savior that does not force himself on us. He calls to us and says, come to me who are weak and weary. He doesn't force himself. He doesn't barge in. He stands there and he says, if you will, if you will insert me, if you will come to me, you will find joy and peace. But until you come to me, you won't. See, because if our security rests on everything in this world, and, and all the things the world has with it, Jesus offers security that transcends this world. If your security is resting on your 401k or your portfolio or the job that you currently have or in the youth that you possess or the education and the intellect that you have, all of those things are going to wane and wax away. Because it's all based upon the world's economic system and it is going to fall apart. But if your security is built on Jesus, that transcends this world. All that other stuff you leave behind when you leave this world. And I can assure you, one day we're all leaving this world. 
We don't know when, we don't know how, but we are. And the only security that we take from this world to the next is the security that we have in Christ. Verse 20 is the most jarring verse in the entire passage when he says, see, which means look up or look or take notice. He says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. Now, I've often heard this in the context of Jesus standing outside the heart of a believer knocking and saying, I want to come in and be your savior. But who is John writing to here, church? He's writing to the church. So the accurate application of this context is it is a, it is more of a, of a warning to the church, a pleading to the church, a challenge to the church to let Jesus be Jesus in the church. Where is Jesus supposed to be according to chapter 1? What does it say? He's supposed to be in the lampstands. He's supposed to be in the midst of his church. He's supposed to be holding the church in his hands. And where is he in Revelation 3 in Laodicea? He's on the outside looking in because there's no room for him there. Remember back at Christmas time, there wasn't room for Christ either in the inn. And so where did they find? They found a place for Jesus to be. And what happened? People came to him. And then he came to others because he loved them. Jesus it will always knock. He will always make an attempt to reach us. But we have to receive him, church. In Laodicea, he's outside the church. And they're so stinking self-sufficient that they don't even realize that he's not in there. Now, I think you can just about guess where I'm going with this. The application that we can draw from Laodicea, right? Doesn't this look like the church in the United States of America in 20, 2022? Doesn't this look like Christianity today? We got just enough of Jesus to like, you know, to take care of the buzz and the itch of sin. And we know we're going to go to heaven. But when it comes to other things in our life, Jesus is on the back burner and other things rule and reign. Did you know that when believers from other nations come to visit the church in America, that many of them are astounded at how lukewarm we really are? One believer from the Middle East came to America and was asked by his church when he returned home about the church in the U.S. And he said, I am astounded at how much they think they are accomplishing with so little of God. A pastor friend of mine who is nearing retirement now, he was on a trip to Korea a few years back. And he was speaking with his Korean host and asked him what it took to be a pastor. What's the path to being a pastor in Korea? You know, because in America, it's, you know, you're called and then you go to Bible college and seminary and, and all that stuff. And he said, American pastors would never make it in Korea. He said, that wasn't arrogance. He said it with a sadness in his voice. He said, he said, in Korea, it's not about how much you know. It's about how close you are. He said, in Korea, we're up by 4 a.m., to meet with our church each morning for prayer meeting that starts at five before the church goes off to work. See, they're appalled at how little we actually follow Christ's commands and how little we pray and how much time we spend on our phones. How little we give, yet we spend so much on ourselves and how much we worry over things that we, can't, that we say we can't live without but that most of the world will never have access to. They're appalled at how afraid we are to identify ourselves as Christians in the public when so many of them are literally being persecuted for their faith every day. And while we're just going through the motions, doing some good things with very little real passion for Christ, and again, I don't say this as a big guilt trip, I just say this as we look a lot more like Laodicea than we want to admit, don't we? 
So while we've already turned the focus from Laodicea to us, I want to look at seven things. And I borrowed these seven things from two, two pastors who have preached on this passage before. Francis Chan and Craig Rochelle. To give us seven signs that we may be lukewarm. And the first sign is this, is that we may be lukewarm if we crave people's acceptance more than we crave God's. We crave people's acceptance and approval more than we crave God's. Anybody in here guilty of uh, approval addiction? It's a real thing, right? Approval addiction. I want to make sure everybody's happy with me. I want to make sure everybody likes me. How many of you really just have a hard time if you know somebody's upset with you or thinks wrong about you? I have a big problem with this. You know what it really comes down to at the center of all of it? Is that we must know first and foremost that we are approved in Jesus. And then we filter everything else. See, we're people who crave the approval of others. That's why we put a selfie up on, on, on social media and we instantly try to figure out how many likes we get. And if we don't get the likes that we thought we were going to get, um, we're, on, we're in trouble. But if we do, we're on cloud nine. <clears throat> or we don't want to re be regarded as weird or as freaks so we conform our morals to everyone else's. Or we take our cues for what, we, what to be offended by from the culture, not from the scriptures. You see, the point of my life is shaped by what other people think, not by what God thinks. And when we make decisions, our first thought is not, how does God feel about this? But what will other people think about this? See, lukewarm Christians care more about what other people think than what God does. Lukewarm Christians also, they rationalize, their, they really don't share their faith in Christ. As lukewarm Christians, we can really not share our faith in Christ. See, we consider ourselves... Christians, but we don't want to make people uncomfortable by talking about religion, so we just rarely ever bring it up. First of all, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that the gospel is true, church? Do we believe that the gospel is true? Then how could we really believe that the gospel is true and not tell anybody about it? It's because the gospel says that without Jesus, we're toast. How could we not care to tell people about that? How could we not? Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. But if you do not, I will not confess you before my Father in heaven. So I, I think a lot of the reason that, that lukewarm Christians are like this is because they believe the gospel, but they never really felt its power or its transforming effect. Because in this Laodicean mindset, all Jesus is is an insurance plan for the future, not a present necessity for today. Did you catch that? The reason that we don't believe in the power of the gospel or felt the power of the gospel is we just look at Jesus as an insurance plan for the future and not a present necessity for the day. And because of that, we'll also, in our lukewarmness, we begin to rationalize our sin. See, because lukewarm Christians, we, we don't really hate our sin. We, we, we just don't want to be thought of as bad people. Right? So we're constantly asking this question, how close can I come to sin without being thought of as a bad person? How close can I get to sin without being thought of a bad person or without having to pay for it, right? How close can I get to sin without really ticking God off to where he like decides to chastise me? And when you ask that, what we're really showing is that we're not really moved by a love for Christ because when we fall in love with Jesus, we begin to get the heart of Jesus. And Jesus' heart is broken by sin. And if we're a people who have the heart of Christ, but we're not broken by sin, then we don't really have the heart of Christ. See, when, if I love my wife and I, and I take her out on a date, if the kids ever let us do that, 
I'm not asking, what's the minimum amount that I can put into this and get by with it? Right? Guys, if you're doing that, you're doing it wrong. Right? See, when you're not motivated by love for Christ, you're thinking, how close can I get to sin? What's the minimum I can do and still get entrance into heaven? So I've heard it said before like this. Francis Chan said this. Lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from sin. They just want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. Isn't that true? We don't really want to be saved and delivered from our sin to live a life of righteousness that glorifies Christ. We just want to be saved from the penalty so that when this life is over, I get to go on and experience heaven. We don't hate the sin. We just hate the thought of going to hell. And this is what moves us to the next thing. Lukewarm Christians think more about life on earth and eternity in heaven. And this is what drives it more than anything. Right? We just can't see past this life. We have, a, we have a real narrow vision of eternity. And I get it. We've never had a glimpse of it. We've never seen it. Look, John the Revelator, he's getting a glimpse of eternity that nobody else got. I guess I would guarantee you that John, after he saw this vision, didn't have any problem looking at sin for what it really was. But we haven't been given that vision other than this glimpse that we see right here in Revelation. Right? Paul said this, to live is Christ, yet to die is gain. What does that mean? That means to live means running with Jesus. He says to live is Christ. It means in my life, I'm going to run with Jesus. And when I die, I'm going to get even more of Jesus. Because I'll be in his presence forever. It's not while I live, I'm going to enjoy everything I got down here. I'm going to make sure my bucket list is full before I draw my last breath. No, while I'm here, I'm going to run with Jesus wherever he runs me. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to be with Jesus for eternity. That's the Christian view of life. What an attitude do we see in America though, right? It's, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I have to lengthen my life as long as possible. I'd rather be 105 and wear diapers than die. But, but church, if we know what waits on us in heaven and, and, and being in eternity with our king, the hymn of heaven that we just sang, why do we try to put off death so much? See, I'm convinced that if, if God, God gave us a real glimpse of what heaven looked like, I think the suicide rate among Christians would go up because we'd be trying to kill ourselves to get there. Look, life is to be lived. Life is to be lived for Christ and lived according to his purpose. But man, when he says it's time to go, let's not fight him. Think about life more than we think about eternity in heaven. A lukewarm Christian also only turns to God when they find themselves needing something. This is something that I'm sad to say about myself, and maybe this is you. But I look back over my life, and I look back over seasons of my prayer, and I found that my prayer life becomes a whole lot more passionate and a whole lot more ramped up when I'm in need than when I'm in, when I, when I don't have need, when I'm in blessing. And I need to repent of that. Because we go to God when we have need for something. But until then, he sits over on the shelf like that insurance plan that we pull out when we need to make a claim. This is exactly what verse number 20 is picturing. He says, we often treat Jesus like this pet that just stays out in the yard until we think it's time for him to come in. And only then do we let him in. Here's the problem, church. Jesus isn't our pet. He's a king. He's a king. 
Lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they need something. And then lukewarm Christians only give when it's convenient. Give if it makes us look good or feel good. But then we're like, don't push me because this is my stuff. Don't push me past this point. We'll give God the leftovers, not our first and best. Francis Chan, again, <clears throat> he says this, lukewarm Christians love their luxuries and rarely give to the poor in a truly sacrificial way. So we serve a God who says that he wants our first and our best in the book of Malachi. He says, I want your first and I want your absolute best. He doesn't want our leftovers. He told the people in Malachi that if they weren't giving first and best, they were robbing God. And so we have to come to a place where we stop calling our complacency and our apathy, our busy schedule that keeps us from giving our time, our bills for things that we want rather than need that minimizes whether we can actually tithe or our forgetfulness. And we need to call it what it is. It's rebellion and it's theft. So lukewarm Christians will only give when it's convenient. And lukewarm Christians, I can see you're loving this. So let me give you the last one so we can move on. We're not much different than the rest of the world. When it all comes down to it, we're not much different than the rest of the world. Think about this. What did a citizen of Laodicea find that was so much different when they visited the church in Laodicea? What could they have actually really found that was much different? Maybe they sang some songs that they didn't normally hear on the radio. Maybe they talked about Jesus. But did they meet with Jesus? If Jesus is on the outside looking in saying, let me in, did they really meet with Jesus? So remember how the water in Laodicea was lukewarm? It was not hot like it was up in the mountain and it wasn't cold like it was on the other side of the valley. That water had flowed down and it had just kind of taken on room temperature, right? And this is what we do as well. Lukewarm Christians just kind of take on the room temperature of the world around them. Not much different. Watch the same movies as everybody, listen to the same music, use the same filthy language, same, you know, possess the same morals, raise our kids like everybody else, prioritize what everybody else prioritizes, spend our money what everybody else spends their money on, use our homes like they do, plan our retirements like everybody else. If we have difficulty in our marriages, turn to divorce just as much as everybody else. I'm not saying that's not a complex question, right? I'm not saying that... There's, there's reason that has to be used when he says come out from the world and be separate. But I'm just saying that we need to be distinctively different. Distinctively different. When we live comfortably and we, we live self-sufficiently, indistinct in our passion, our morality, and our sacrificial way of living, the world doesn't see how Jesus has made a difference. If we're just a more polished up religious version of ourselves the world doesn't see the change that Jesus can make now wasn't that a heartwarming message to hear during Christmas time right here's the point when Jesus came this was the temperature of God's people God's chosen people that he had brought out of Egypt, brought out of, of Babylon, brought out of captivity, done all of those things that he had blessed them, blessed them, blessed them. They had come to a place in the book of Malachi where God said, if you don't quit robbing me, man, if you don't quit having this apathetic heart towards me, there's going to be problems. And they wouldn't come to him. At the end of Malachi, he says, you're robbing me and it must change. And they don't change. And guess what happens? Silence for four centuries. <coughs> And that whole time, they're poor and they're destitute and they're oppressed and they don't even realize it. And what happens? A baby pierces the darkness. 
Jesus is born. Hope has come. And they follow him for 33 years, but what happens after that? People still said, nah, I think it's about our stuff and it's about our old ways and it's not really about Jesus. I can't put everything in Christ. And so when Jesus died on Calvary, the five, more than 5,000 people who he fed by his own hand were there calling for his crucifixion. Only a few people were there. And there were only a few people in the upper room that still followed him. <coughs> the point I'm trying to make is we wane in our lukewarmness and in our passion. But church... Not only do, can we not afford to wane, but the world around us cannot afford for us to wane in our passion for him. In Laodicea, the same thing was taking place. They become so overwhelmed in their blessings that they had become underwhelmed in Jesus Christ. And to the church today, I believe he's doing the same thing. And here's the promise that he says. Because Jesus doesn't just leave an accusation. He doesn't just leave a problem. He gives the solution, doesn't he? He says, stand at the door and knock. <clears throat> if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. And I'll eat with him. And eat with me. <clears throat> you look at that and you ask, is Jesus hungry? No, it's not about that. It's about Jesus making himself available to honor us with his presence. Once again. Because for a person to come and to sit down in your home was a position of trust and honor. What Jesus is saying is, here I am. I want to come in. I want to be your everything, but you have to let me in. <clears throat> and that's the question today as we close out. Here he is. Will you let him in? Thank you for listening today. At Grace Way, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.